So with that, we finished the first two horsemen, uh, the white horse of peace and the red horse of war. Uh, and now we're going to see the results of that war. In Revelation 6, 5 through 8, uh, we'll look at the black horse and the ashen horse. See, Kelly, could I have you read this verse for us, 5 and 6? When he broke the third seal, I heard the living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, a black horse. And he who has sat on it had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard something like a voice in the center of the four living creatures saying, quote, a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius and do not damage the oil and the wine. Good, thank you. So this one is structured a little different, um, but not by the divine author, but by the uh, man who came in later and gave us the verse numbers. Uh, the structure of this verse is still pretty much the same. Uh, the, uh, the seal is broken, the horse is announced, and then comes uh, the results of this seal. It only so happens that part of the results of this seal were put into verse 5, um, but it still maintains the same structure as the other uh, four, so it can well be identified with those four horses. Uh, the color black uh, has been identified before with famine. In Lamentations 4, 8 through 9, uh, the prophet Jeremiah writes about the uh, judgment that comes on Jerusalem uh, during the diaspora. He says, their appearance is blacker than soot. They are not recognized in the streets. Their skin is shriveled on their bones. It is withered. It has become like wood. Better are those slain with the sword than those slain with hunger. For they pine away, being stricken for lack of the fruits of the land. The hand of compassionate women boiled their own children. They became food for them because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. The Lord has accomplished his wrath. He has poured out his fierce anger, and he has kindled a fire in Zion, which has consumed its foundations. Again, in being in New Testament times, we're very unfamiliar at times with the wrath of God. Uh, we're in a time of grace, where his grace is exceptionally uh, detailed throughout this age. Uh, that being said, God is a jealous God, um, and God is a God that demands justice. Um, it can be rightly said that he holds justice in one hand and mercy in another hand, and he alone is able to give of both equally uh, without diminishing from the other. And uh, <clears throat> he did give Israel ample warning through their 1,500 years of their responsibility uh, under their covenants with him, and he warned them continuously uh, that failure under these covenants would result in their being turned over to the nations around them. Uh, often their failure in these covenants came with worshiping the gods of those around them. Uh, he compares them to adulterous women. In the book of Ezekiel, um, he speaks of Judah and Israel as two um, adulterous sisters. And Judah is the the more adulterous of the two, uh, 
and uh, Jeremiah is writing here of the destruction of uh, Jerusalem or of Judah uh, under the captivities. And uh, up until this point, it's probably the worst um, human suffering that has taken place. Uh, I even wonder if, um, if um, this punishment of Judah was worse than the Holocaust. Uh, it's described in such a way that it may well have been worse than the Holocaust, which is hard for us to imagine. Um, but it is pretty unique that we in this period of time um, have such a recent, uh, a recent event to compare with because uh, Jesus Christ himself speaks of the final tribulation that'll come upon this world as the worst uh, that has ever touched this earth. So we can look at the captivity of Israel and Judah. We can look at the Holocaust and say that those will pale in comparison to the final judgment. In Ezekiel 4, 16 through 17, Ezekiel says, Moreover, he said to me, son of man, behold, I am going to break the staff of bread in Jerusalem, and they will eat bread by weight and with anxiety and drink water by measure and in horror, because bread and water will be scarce, and they will be appalled with one another and waste away in their iniquity. Uh, the rationing of food uh, is often uh, in conjunction with famine, uh, but there also may be something else going on here in the black horse um, where the food is being rationed. And we'll look at that when we see the sparing of the oil and the wine. Uh, but one way or another, there will be terrible famine uh, that follows the war of the end times. Uh, in verse 6, uh, we encounter a voice from the center of the four living creatures. We'll identify that voice. Uh, and then that voice gives us this information. He says a quart of wheat for a denarius and three quarts of barley for a denarius. Uh, these measurements indicate a day's wage for a day's sustenance. It may even be a single meal's sustenance for an entire day's wage. Uh, I think a day's wage today is anywhere from about 100 to $150, $200. Uh, so imagine that just to eat for one person for a day. Uh, and then finally, it says, and do not damage the oil and the wine. So this voice that comes from the center of the living creatures, uh, it may be the lamb, uh, Jesus Christ. In Revelation 5, 6, he says, and I saw between the throne and the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. It is possible, but it's not coming uh, from between or from the four living creatures, but it's coming from between the throne and the living creatures here. So that may be, but uh, it's not a perfect fit here. The throne uh, is in the center of these four living creatures. So it says, and in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, so the throne is identified as being between or in the center of uh, these four living creatures. Uh, in Revelation 6, uh, another similar voice speaks, and this is clearly identified as God. Uh, 
So it says, and there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while, or a little while longer, until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been, uh, would be completed also. The giver of this white robe uh, is a member of the Godhead, um, most likely God himself sitting on the throne. Uh, and it can probably be properly identified as the same speaker um, in 611 as, um, as we have in 66. Uh, and we can see that historically, uh, Yahweh, translated usually as Lord in the Old Testament, calls for famine at times. Uh, in 2 Kings 8.1, now Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go with your household and sojourn wherever you can sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will even come on the land for seven years. Uh, Yahweh judges with famine in Haggai 1, 9 through 11. Uh, the prophet says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So here we see that because of covenant disobedience, uh, the Lord has called for a famine on the land of Israel. And a lot of these elements we can see are similar, including the oil and the wine here. But uniquely in Haggai, uh, the oil and the wine are also uh, in famished, uh, whereas in Revelation, those will be spared. Yahweh beckons uh, using famine, but now do consider from this day onward, before one stone has or was placed on another in the temple of the Lord, from that time when one came to a grain heap of 20 measures, there would be only 10. And when one came to the wine vat to draw 50 measures, there would be only 20. I smote you and every work of your hands with blasting wind, mildew and hail, yet you did not come back to me, declares the Lord. The purpose for his sending the famine was to turn Israel's eyes back towards him. Uh, uh, essentially, we can relate this to the carrot or the stick. For thousands of years, he has extended the carrot to Israel. Uh, in fact, the entire church program has been a program of making Israel jealous uh, for that which the church has. And their lack of jealousy uh, but rather their animosity towards Jesus Christ has brought about, finally, the stick of famine in the last days. Uh, and we can see that man's food source um, has actually been cursed or withheld before. Um, the curse on man uh, after the fall uh, was pretty similar. Uh, God says to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you will eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall grow for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. 
By the sweat of your face you will eat bread till, the re till you return to the ground, because from it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. This curse specifically um, targets man's sustenance, where the garden was provided to uh, give him food that it would produce of itself without his needing to cultivate it in order to eat. In other words, he didn't have to work and toil just to survive uh, before his survival was granted and his work and toil was, um, was counted as good and a blessing to him and himself. In fact, um, the, the uh, what is it called? The divine institution of work is actually a benevolent institution. Work is not a curse in and of itself. Uh, work is actually a blessing to God and to man. Uh, but the necessity of work uh, for simple uh, survival is the curse. And we see that exacerbated under the kingdom of the Antichrist, where as soon as he attempts to, um, to subvert this curse, which shows him as being finally thrown down in the end, he attempts to subvert this curse and the curse itself is exacerbated, uh, so much so that all of the work that men can do barely provides enough for themselves to live. So uh, this, this attack actually goes right at all of the divine institutions, uh, the divine institution of work, of marriage, of family, because one who is working for a simple day's sustenance is unable to provide for a wife or children. Uh, each one would have to work for themselves um, to barely make ends meet by eating. And again, this is just for food. Um, no other uh, amenities such as housing, uh, but food is really the bare necessity for a, for a human to survive. And even that um, is barely attainable. And um, from the first and second horse, we have seen uh, the totalitarianism of the Antichrist's government. We see him coming from a kingdom much like Babel, much like Babylon. In fact, it will be the revived Babylonian empire. Um, and the characteristics of that Antichrist government uh, seem to, uh, to go in the face of the fourth and fifth divine institutes, civil authority, uh, which was given at the uh, covenant with Abraham, or not Abraham, uh, Noah, where uh, civil governments are given the authority to take life uh, for the life of another. In fact, if a government is unable to give capital punishment, really no laws are able to be enforced. Uh, the Institute of Capital Punishment is one uh, given by God to governments in order to protect life uh, by, uh, by guarding against the sins that man is so capable of. If, if such a punishment as capital punishment is uh, able to be dealt out, um, it staves off more grievous sins. But as well, uh, the fifth divine institute of nationalism or of the nation state is attacked by the Antichrist. We see him taking power over the entire earth, erasing lines between nations. The lines between nations 
were given uh, by God in order to control the sin natures of men. Uh, for example, uh, the very birth of America, which came out of the oppression of England, where we were able to escape that nation and create a nation of our own, uh, founded under godly principles. That's the very purpose of God's establishment of nation states. If you are unable to escape your own nation, uh, if the entire world is one government, uh, it's much easier for that government to attain power to itself and to corrupt that power. Uh, there's a pretty popular phrase that uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And that's what we're looking at here, where the authority that the Antichrist will, uh, will take over the entire earth quickly devolves into war and then quickly um, devolves further into famine and we'll see subsequently death. Uh, but an attempt to ration the food source uh, is one that we're familiar with. In Venezuela more recently, uh, in Europe during uh, the first half of the 20th century especially, and throughout Asia, attempts to ration food sources are often rife with corruption as well, where the upper elite in the government are able to eat well, um, but the, the forced laborers, uh, the peons, are not able to survive. Uh, and that brings us to the oil and the wine, why specifically those are uh, withheld from rationing. Ironside says the oil and the wine are put in contrast with the wheat and the barley. The wheat and barley are the food of the poor, almost out of reach, but the food of the rich or the luxuries are not touched. Uh, it might be divine irony here uh, that the non-necessities are available in large quantities, but the necessities are barely available. Or it could be the simple um, economics of a socialistic or a communistic government where the upper elite are able to, uh, to live in their luxuries while um, the lower classes are unable even to eat for survival. And again, we'll see this uh, where some are not able to buy and sell later on because they haven't taken the mark of the beast. We'll, we'll see also that the world is involved in, in lots of trading where the, uh, the center of the Antichrist government is uh, rich with sea trade, with land trade, probably air trade as well. Um, but the general population is starving and unable to buy food. In Revelation 6, 15 to 17, at the end of the seal judgments, we'll see that uh, even the elite uh, will not escape judgment, though they may escape the famine element of it. Uh, in Revelation 6, 15 to 17, uh, John says, then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, 
I know in our present context, it's very easy for us to look at the poor um, suffering under this judgment of famine and say, how unfair. Um, but recognize that this is a judgment coming from God and a judgment specifically for unbelief. Those who remain on the earth uh, at this point, the rapture of the church having already taken place, are guilty of unbelief. Um, they are guilty of rejection of Jesus Christ, of rejection of the cross. Um, so he is just in doling out this, um, this wrath in the same way he was just in doling out this wrath on Israel specifically um, about 2,500 years ago. So famine. Uh, God will send famine on the earth, a not uncommon effect of war. This famine will exacerbate the disparity between the rich and the poor, likely those in cahoots with the Antichrist government, which will be responsible for rations. Satan's attempt to rule through a mediatorial king, the Antichrist, will only exacerbate the curse itself. All right, Mark, if you're still on with us, um, could you read seven and eight? I don't think he's on anymore. Uh, Kelly, could I have you read seven and eight? When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature saying, come. I looked and behold, an ashen horse and he who sat on it had the name death and Hades was following with him. Authority was given to them over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by the wild beasts of the earth. All right, thank you. <clears throat> so again, we see that the seal is opened. The living creatures announce uh, the fourth horseman that will be uh, riding, which is the wrath of Christ on this earth. Uh, and at this point, we can take a look at a parallel text. Uh, this is from the Olivet Discourse, when Christ's disciples asked him what will be the signs of the uh, coming of the end of the age. Uh, Christ gives a very similar chronology of events. So he says, see to it that no one misleads you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ, and will mislead you. You will be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for these things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you. And you will be hated by all nations because of my name. Uh, so with this text in mind, uh, I would, I think it's best to place these four horsemen and in fact, all six um, seals that take place in the sixth chapter of Revelation in the first half of the tribulation, uh, which would be the first three and a half years. And I would think it probably takes place relatively early on in those three and a half years, not extending throughout the whole three and a half years. Again, we've seen how quickly just, um, just a 
disease has totally changed the structure of world uh, government uh, with COVID. That took less than, what is it, 14 months for us to get to where we're at now. Uh, I don't think it's going to take very long um, for these birth pains during the tribulation uh, to unravel. So I would say uh, at least in the first three and a half years, possibly early on in those first three and a half years. And why I put it before the midpoint of the tribulation is because Christ says, then they will deliver you to tribulation. This you is referring to a Jewish audience. And the Jews have long anticipated a three and a half year tribulation called the time of Jacob's trouble. Whereas the entire tribulation period is spoken of in seven years. So the specific Jewish tribulation, uh, which is the specific, um, it, it will be more targeted towards the Jewish people, takes place in the second half of the tribulation, the time of Jacob's trouble. And Christ is identifying these birth pains as taking place prior to the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation of Israel. So this last horse, the Ashen horse, uh, is named Death, and Hades is following. It doesn't give us any indication about how Hades is following, whether on foot or floating or riding another horse, although no mention is made of another horse, so I think that would be... Um, a poor interpretation, but one way or another, Hades is following close behind death, and authority is given to them together um, over a quarter of the earth uh, for the express purpose of killing. Their means of killing will be sword, famine, and pestilence, and by the wild beasts of the earth. <clears throat> this word in the Greek for green is chloros, um, I think it's related to our word for chlorine. Um, it's an ashen color, a green, greenish yellow, greenish gray, pale or sickly pale. And one uh, Greek scholar has interpreted this as the pallor of death, a corpse in the advanced state of corruption. So that's the color of this horse is the same color of decay and death. In Ezekiel 5.17, we see a similar tetrad of judgments. Moreover, I will send on you famine and wild beasts, and they will bereave you of children, plague, and bloodshed. Also will pass through you, and I will bring the sword on you. I, the Lord, have spoken. Uh, this, uh, this term, pestilence, it's disease, but it's specifically disease leading to death. So it's not a minor disease. Um, it would be uh, speaking of a pandemic and a very, uh, a very potent pandemic, um, probably more like the Spanish flu than our current coronavirus. Uh, uh, in 2 Kings 2, 23 to 24, uh, it says, then he went up from there to Bethel, and as he was going up by the way, young lads came out from the city and mocked him. So this is speaking of um, Elisha after he takes over for Elijah, uh, and he's mocked by these children, and uh, we're actually not children, lads just means young men, uh, mocked him and said to him, go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. 
then he looked behind him and saw them. He cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and tore up 42 lads of their number. So we can see that God has used wild animals before to enact specific judgments. Uh, I, I include this because for me, it was quite strange when I was encountering this verse, saying, okay, we've seen war, we've seen famine, we've seen pestilence, and now all of a sudden, wild animals. What's the deal with the wild animals? Uh, well, it, it seems that uh, wild animals will be part of this final judgment, a turning of the animals against mankind. Uh, in 1 Kings 13, 24, it says, Now when he had gone, a lion met him on the way and killed him, and his body was thrown on the road with a donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. Um, I think the, the title in in my Bible above this verse was uh, the fearless lion. And it does show that the lion was fearless of the men around it. And we encounter this today when we have a cougar in the area or on the island. Uh, one of the first factors that we have to determine is, um, is it scared of mankind? If it's scared of mankind, we can relocate it to another uh, place. But if it lacks fear of man, uh, we put down the animal because if it encounters Another human, um, it could kill a human. And I think that's that's what this lion in First Kings is, is a lion that uh, lacks the, the natural fear of man in animals. Uh, in Genesis 9, 2 through 5, God has promised this fear um, that will be in animals. He says, the fear of you and the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and on every bird of the sky. With everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hands, they are given. Uh, and it continues the purposes that they are food for us. Um, what I think is going on here is uh, a uh, taking back this provision that God has given to put the fear of mankind in the hearts of animals. Uh, I think that fear will no longer be in them yet uh, they still remain food for us during times of famine. Uh, obviously, people will be looking for sources of food, and if animals no longer fear us, uh, we essentially enter into the animal kingdom. Uh, we fight for food the same way they fight among themselves for food. Um, and I, I think that's essentially what's going on here in the tribulation is uh, a an allowance of God uh, on the animals to no longer fear mankind in the way that they have since the flood. Uh, another verse I didn't find important enough to include in here because it's not exactly on the same uh, level, but if you look in the Gospel of Mark, uh, where it speaks of the temptation of Christ, uh, let me grab it. Uh, and this is only recorded in Mark's account of the gospel. Uh, so in Mark 1, 23. One second here. Uh, so after the baptism of Jesus, uh, 
it says, immediately the spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness, and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts and the angels were ministering to him. Uh, I think this is identifying Christ um, with, the, uh, with the kingdom that was prior to the fall. Uh, where mankind could live in harmony with the beasts, uh, out in the wilderness, hungry and famished, 40 days, um, it would be more likely that these beasts would turn on a man and eat him. But rather, um, it appears that Christ is dealing or is um, existing in harmony with these animals out in the wilderness, as well angels are ministering to him. Uh, well, in the book of Revelation, uh, where we encounter the anti-kingdom. Uh, we encounter uh, savage beasts that have turned their eyes on mankind, as well the wrath of God being poured out um, using the angels as part of its means. And we'll encounter that more in the trumpets and bowl of judgments where the angels are used as uh, instruments of judgment. Um, so here, essentially, what is going on, I think, is um, a retrieval of God from uh, the provisions that he gave man to allow them to live in a cursed world. He's taken away those restraints um, and allowed the world to uh, fester in its own sin, essentially. Uh, a quarter of the earth, uh, I mean, these are pretty easy uh, calculations that anyone can do. If they're given a Authority over a quarter of the earth today, that's as many as, many as 1.97 billion, almost 2 billion people uh, would be given authority just by this fourth or just to this fourth uh, movement of the Antichrist. Uh, that's more than any single nation on this earth. Um, China is 1.44 million, India 1.39, the USA only 0.3 million. Uh, so it's equivalent to to what I thought I put it in here. Oh, six times the current population of the USA uh, would be given over to death in Hades. Uh, if we are to assume a generous rapture up to 1 billion, uh, that would be the professing, uh, I think just the professing Protestants, perhaps even the Catholics. Uh, that still is 1.75 billion people. Uh, it's still more than any nation on earth, five times the current population of the USA. The largest war, the worst famine, the deadliest pandemic is yet future, also wild animals. So uh, it is definitely not a time on earth that anyone would want to be present. Thankfully, we as part of the church will not be present for this. Uh, throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to see a few more um, fractions of human uh, life which is given over to the enemy. This is only the first, a quarter of the earth is given over to the um, birth pain judgments, uh, the first four of the seals. Uh, the next one that we'll encounter during the trumpets is a third of the earth. So if you remove this quarter, a third is where three quarters are left, a third will be given over. Uh, and then towards the end, half of the world will be given over. So that leaves essentially a quarter of the population. That's uh, less than 2 billion people by today's numbers. 
Now this uh, doesn't come directly from the text, but it's um, uh, including the possible rapture numbers plus those who would likely die in the rapture event. Um, for example, um, just something I was thinking of, I just did a 1,200-mile trip from North Dakota to Washington, and as I was going down the highway at uh, 80 miles an hour, I realized just how destructive it would be if I suddenly disappeared from my car, um, and likely that I would not be the only one disappearing from my car. Um, so I figured there, there would be quite a few deaths in the occasion of the rapture uh, from those left behind. No telling how many those are, but just including them into the numbers taken up in the rapture. Uh, we're essentially looking at somewhere close to uh, one-fifth of today's population surviving to the end of this uh, tribulation period. And in Matthew 24, 21, uh, we see that it's only by the intercession of God that any remain living. Uh, so he says, for then there will be a great tribulation such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. For the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Uh, so this tribulation period, uh, were God to let it run its course, it would extinguish all life. But that's not his purpose. Uh, he will uh, cut short those days of uh, trial and tribulation. Uh, we see that uh, Jesus has power over death in Hades. Uh, and being that this comes from the same book that we are studying, chapter 6, uh, it should bring back these recent memories when we looked at death in Hades. So from Revelation 1.17 to 19, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man, and he placed his right hand on me, saying, do not be afraid, I am the first and the last, and the living one, and I was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of Hades. So again, uh, we look at this fourth horseman and see that it is not the wrath of Satan on the earth but um, it is the wrath of Christ where he holds the keys of death and Hades. And uh, unless he opens, it is shut. And unless he shuts, it is open. Uh, and I believe this is given to us as prefatory material so that we, when we encounter the fourth uh, horse rider, we understand that Christ uh, is in authority over these horsemen, not Satan, though he may use the efforts of the Antichrist on the earth um, to enact his judgments. So the last enemy uh, we see will be defeated in 1 Corinthians 15, 26. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Um, so we see that though it is under the authority of Christ, uh, this fourth rider death uh, will be abolished as the enemy. And that... Uh, that abolition will take place at the end of the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20, 12 through 15 says, And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, 
and Beth and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. So we see that death and Hades will both be thrown into the lake of fire, sharing uh, in the judgment of the wicked dead. And during our uh, resurrections uh, topical study, we identified these wicked dead as all those throughout history who have not come uh, to God on the basis of faith in his promises. Uh, and that being uh, on the foundation of Jesus Christ's uh, work on the cross. Uh, so the last thing, I think this is the last thing, perhaps, um, is what is biblical death and what is Hades in the Bible? Uh, how are these two terms different? Well, biblical death speaks of separation, uh, specifically separation of the body and the soul. Uh, it's a very uh, anthropocentric idea that death means uh, non-existence. For us, in our limited perspective, uh, being here on Earth, inhabiting mortal bodies in a temporal time period, we look at our friends and our neighbors dying, and to us, they cease to exist. But to God, uh, there is no such thing as ceasing to exist. A soul has an eternal destiny, either heaven or hell. And uh, the concept of death in scripture only indicates separation, separation from body and soul. Uh, there are other uh, meanings to death, but it also always means separation in some way. Spiritual death is the separation of uh, man from God. Uh, that is spoken of here as Hades, which is the abode of the wicked dead. Um, so not only are mankind dying, being separated from their body and their souls, but they are going to Hades, which is essentially the holding tank for the wicked dead, which are awaiting the judgment of God. Every single soul which enters into Hades um, is separated from God. So it's speaking of both physical death and spiritual death. In other words, the second death. Um, so the judgment of the fourth horseman is physical death and the second death. Um, so we see here, uh, at least the way I interpret this, is those who have come to Christ during the tribulation will not be affected by this judgment. This judgment is specifically for the wicked dead. They will be, uh, they will die bodily, and they will be awaiting the final judgment of the wicked um, at the end of the millennial kingdom. Um, so again, together, it speaks of both the first and the second death. In Matthew 10, 28, um, we see that uh, the powers that are uh, against each other here in the end days and even today are not equal powers. Uh, death is not equal to the power of God, to the power of Christ, uh, but it is um, subversive to it. So Christ says, do not fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul but rather for him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Satan does not have the power 
to send someone to hell, but rather it is God's judicial um, duty and power for those who have failed to approach him on a faith basis. Um, their just reward is um, eternal damnation to hell. Um, but Jesus Christ holds the keys to death in Hades, not Satan. Um, so anyone who goes uh, is not uh, is not hoodwinked by Satan, is not dragged against their will by Satan, but rather must choose themselves uh, either faith in Jesus Christ or no faith, uh, which is the choice of eternal damnation. Uh, and uh, on that sad note, uh, we we end our current uh, section. Unfortunately, for the next couple of weeks, it's going to be mostly sad news, but we'll, we'll talk about that in a second. Um, in conclusion here, death in Hades, uh, the beginning of the tribulation will be heralded by peace, but will soon become the deadliest era of human history. The birth pains are only the beginning of sorrows. Israel and the world are judged together um, during the first half of this tribulation. Uh, so speaking of the sad news that takes place throughout most of the book of Revelation, um, chapters 6 through 7 or 6 through 18 particularly, uh, they are focused around three sets of judgments, the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. Uh, but after the sixth uh, sixth set in each of these uh, judgments, the book of Revelation is going to give us an interlude. Um, so next week we'll look at seals five and six, and then after that we'll we'll have an interlude. And the purpose, I believe, of those interludes in the book of Revelation is to give us uh, some hope, because we're looking at some very uh, dark. Uh, dark material here, uh, it would naturally bring about an element of sorrow. And an element of sorrow is good because it, uh, it incites us to, to uh, share the truth of Jesus Christ with our, uh, with our neighbors, with our family. Uh, but at the same time, God's not really in the business of depressing his body, of depressing uh, the church, he is uh, constantly giving encouragement as well. Throughout the epistles, which often deal with some uh, harsh materials, harsh rebukes um, of the way that the churches are conducting themselves, uh, the, the apostles through the Holy Spirit never fail to give some sort of encouragement um, to the listeners or to the hearers of those messages. Uh, so we're, we're going to see that as well, through, consistent throughout the book of Revelation, just like with the seven churches at the beginning where uh, they were rebuked, but then they were also given the promise of eternal life um, for the overcomers. So um, uh, though we've got one more week where it's all bad news, after that we do have an interlude where it's going to be some good news, some bigger perspective. Uh, we'll see that uh, the ultimate purpose of this period of Revelation is justified, and it brings about the glory of God. Uh, all right, so with that, uh, we will conclude. And uh, are there any questions?
So many questions, but we'll let you finish the rest of the story. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so next week, we'll only be looking at two seals next week. They're a little longer in the text. Um, but I, I think we'll finish a little earlier. So if we want to ask any questions, I guess next week would be a good time to do it. Um, yeah, we're, we made pretty good time tonight, though, I think. Mm. All right. Uh, who is going to close us in prayer? Me. All right. All right. Good goodie, by the way. So good. Thank you. Yeah. Lord, we come to you tonight and we thank you so much for your word. Um, thank you, Lord, that you give us um, a hope and that you show us um, what your plans are. Uh, we thank you, God, that every time you inspire us to share your word and the hope with those that do not know you. And we do just pray for the unsaved in our lives and pray that you would open their eyes and um, work through that deception. Um, and we thank you, Lord, that you give us the words and the encouragement. We thank you that our hope is in you and eternal things in your kingdom to come and your kingdom here right now on earth. We thank you for all the study and the time um, put into this and just um, pray for all those involved. We pray for health and, um, and your will to be done in our lives. And we say this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Mm -hmm.